Hi, everybody. This is God Sad for the Sad Truth. I recently had uh, Dr. Randy Nesse, who's a pioneer in evolutionary medicine and a psychiatrist. And then a couple of days ago, I had Dr. Drew Pinsky, who's an addiction physician specialist. And today I've got another psychiatrist and physician, Robert Waldinger, or colloquially Bob. How you doing, Bob? Good. It's it's so nice to be uh, to. I have your book right here, your latest book with Mark Schultz. Please go out and get this, The Secrets to a Good Life. You want to read it. But before we do that, let me just read some of your bio. And I need my glasses for that. As I said, you're a psychiatrist and part-time professor at Harvard. You're also a, you're a psychoanalyst. You're a Zen priest. Maybe we'll get into that. You're the director of the incredible longitudinal study called the Harvard Study of Adult Human Development. I think maybe it's been about eight decades now. Your book's uh, include, as I said, the, the, latest, the latest one, The Good Life Lessons from the World's Largest Scientific Study of Happiness with Mark Schultz, and a much earlier book, Psychiatry for Medical Students. Did I hit all of the key points, Bob, or would you like to add anything? That's, that's plenty. <laughs> okay, so let's get going. First, uh, I actually first heard of the longitudinal Harvard Adult Development Study when I quoted, uh, in I think in one of my past books, uh, I mean, we would say, because I come from French Canada, uh, Georges Vaillant. I don't know how the Americans would say it. Would it be Valiant? Is that how you, how would you pronounce it? He pronounces it Valiant. Yeah. Valiant. Okay. So, we okay. There's the difference. Uh, and I had quoted him probably about something dealing with the importance of relationships. Maybe we could start with that uh, longitudinal study, and then we can eventually get into your book. Sure. Do you want me to explain what the please? Because I mean, it really is arguably. Is it not the longest standing longitudinal study? Okay, so take it away. Yes. Yes. So uh, the study has been going for eighty-five years. Um, it started in nineteen thirty-eight, and it started with two studies that didn't actually know about each other. They were both started at Harvard University, but one was started at Harvard Student Health Service. It was a group of 268 19-year-old young men who were chosen by their deans as fine, upstanding young men for a study of young adult development, adolescence into young adulthood. Um, and now, of course, we, you know, we think, well, if you want to study normal development, you don't restrict yourself to all white men from Harvard. But at that time, that's what they did. The other study was a study of juvenile delinquency started at Harvard Law School. And it was specifically a study of how some children from really disadvantaged backgrounds and troubled families managed to stay out of trouble and take good developmental paths. And so there were 456 boys, average age 12, who were uh, brought together for this study. And um, and then eventually we brought in their spouses, we brought in their children, more than half of whom are women. So we have uh, both class diversity and gender diversity in the study now. Amazing. And what what are, I mean, how many variables are being, you know, coded and quantified in the ongoing study? Well, there've been hundreds over the life of the study, uh, many hundreds. Um, and now probably a hundred or more that we're studying right now, uh, we're collecting data on the second generation on all the children, even as we speak. 
uh, we're doing a survey. Um, so yeah, there's just a, a lot of data. And it's a, it's a genealogical study in that it's only the descendants of the original participants who are allowed to participate, or can you bring in completely fresh new uh, participants? No, we've decided not to. Otherwise, I think we would have brought in more diverse groups, you know, African-Americans and Latinos and many other people. But um, our unique value is the genealogical part of it. It's having this longitudinal view of entire lives and entire families. If we bring in new people, we won't have that backlog of information. So that's why we decided to stay with our original 724 families. And so for when you were appointed as the director, what does that entail? You're sort of the the supra organizer of all the sub studies that are taking place. Is that, I mean, largely your role? Is it is it to be a fundraiser? Is it what, 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 how many hats do you wear as director of such an incredible study? It's all that. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I've primarily been the fundraiser. So I spend a lot of time writing applications for grant money, mostly from the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. And um, and I direct the study and I decide what questions we're going to ask and how we're going to ask, you know, what what methods we're going to use. I do all of that. And of course, I have lots of help. My, my associate director, Mark Schultz, and lots of research assistants. And how many people can tap into the database that's been accumulated? Is it open to all researchers that apply to you and say, hey, I've got a great question that I think might be amenable to a, an analysis from your data set? Or is it restricted largely for Harvard-affiliated researchers? No, it's open to any researcher who mm -hmm. has a good question that our data could be useful to answer. Um, so we've collaborated, oh gosh, for decades, we've collaborated with people from other research groups, other academic institutions, other countries. Is there a, a cluster of disciplines that are most likely to, so is it going to be other psychiatrists and clinical psychologists, or can you get, for example, I'm, I'm housed in a business school. I, I study evolutionary psychology and consumer psychology. Do you get people across the, you know, a wide buffet of possible disciplines, or is it typically mental health professionals that are interested in this data set? Most typically it's mental health. It's it's psychologists, psychiatrists, but some sociologists, some criminologists have collaborated with us, some biologists. So it varies. Uh, a neuroimager we've collaborated with. Amazing. Okay, well, I wanted to get to this beauty right here, and then we'll talk about stuff that's not necessarily related to the book. Uh, now, the reason why I was so interested in, in having you on, well, for several reasons, one of which is, I became intimately familiar with your work because I have this guy coming out soon, this book right here, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. Uh, now, I don't restrict uh, my uh, discussion of happiness to largely relationships, although, of course, I recognize how important relationships are to happiness, and, and that's that's the context in which I quote your work. But in your case, if I'm not mistaken, your book, is largely focusing on that singular variable, the importance of the quality of relationships, a wide range of relationships on our sense of well-being. Is, is that a rough, a good summary? Yes, that's right. Because uh, our work 
has shown, you know, a lot of evidence for the power of relationships, both for happiness, but also for physical health yeah. and longevity. Yeah, I remember actually, I, I think one of the quotes that I cited you is towards the end of my forthcoming book, where I think, was it you who was doing the the comparison between cholesterol scores of people at 50 years old versus versus their relationship quality? And then down when you're 80 years old, the relationships are better predicted than the cholesterol scores. That was you, correct? Exactly, yes. I mean, so I asked uh, 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 Dr. Malhotra, a British cardiologist. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Do, do you know who that is? Asim no. Malhotra? Uh, well, I was asking him, so, okay, let's suppose we've established that link. Well, we have that re relationships are not only important for your mental health, but they are actually physiological markers that, that manifest themselves. Well, what is the proximate mechanism by which that happens? And in his case, he argued that there is now some compelling evidence linking to a reduction in inflammation as a result of having good uh, good relationships. Is that largely the pathway by which this works, or are there other mechanisms that result in that link? Well, there are undoubtedly other mechanisms, but stress and stress reduction seem to be the biggest factors that we know of so far, meaning that relationships when they're good can help us reduce stress. They can help us calm down. They can help us weather difficulties. And when we're isolated or lonely, uh, that's a stressor and raises our levels of chronic inflammation and circulating stress hormones. So yeah, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very prominent mechanism by which this seems to work. Of all the various relationships, so I can have a great relationship with my spouse. Um, I can have a great relationship with friends, great relationship with my nuclear family, great relationship with my pet. Uh, and undoubtedly, I'm sure all of them contribute to my sense of well-being. But is there a hierarchy across the types of relationships that says, look, if you're going to put all your money on one, go with a good marriage or, or, or get a dog and that's your ticket. To... Is there such a hierarchy? Mm, well, there is, but not not by role, but by the kind of support that's provided. So when our uh, men, original men were in middle age, we asked them, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or stressed? And most of them could list several people. Some of them couldn't list anyone, including some of them who were married couldn't list anyone. So it doesn't matter whether you have a marriage license. It doesn't matter what the person's official title is in your life. It really matters. Are they someone who you really feel will be there for you in times of need? Amazing. Uh, I mean, and in, in my forthcoming book, I talk about uh, the important, I mean, two, two decisions that are crucially important to our happiness. One is choosing the right spouse. Now, of course, there isn't a, a formulaic recipe to, to guarantee that you'll choose the right person. There are statistical vagaries that happen. Someone cheats on someone else and the marriage dissolves. But there are certainly scientific findings that are very robust that help us understand the likelihood of your long-term relationship being successful. One of which, for example, is that 
all other things considered, birds of a feather do flock together when it comes to, say, values or belief systems. So, uh, you know, uh, the opposites attract mantra might work well for a short-term sexual dalliance, but it is not uh, a, a protective uh, way to ensure long-term stability. You want to really be with someone who shares your values. Uh, have you looked at some of these kinds of issues while navigating through the importance of relationships in your own book? Well, in our research, we've certainly looked at things like what makes for stability. And what we find is that it's not arguments, like the number of arguments or the intensity of arguments doesn't predict whether people will stay together or not. It's really whether while people are arguing, there's still a bedrock of affection and respect. Yes, yes. I can't remember then. There, there's a gentleman whom I cite in my book, uh, a, a very famous marriage counsel, counselor who listed four, is it Eldam? No, I can't remember his name. I, I, I don't know if it's it's coming to you. There's a very, very famous, he's, he's got a sort of a marriage institute where he oh, yeah, talks John, about- John Gottman. The Thank you, Gottman. I was, I was saying the Edelman. Four, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Yes, thank you. And, and and so basically, and so does your research validate those four horsemen? Yeah, to some extent. We haven't specifically tested it in the right. way that John did, but he's been an advisor to some of our work. And um, and yeah, I mean, he's right. So, for example, contempt yes. is a really bad sign. It's a really bad predictor of whether yeah. a relationship's going to stay together. And I mean, and some of the old sort of grandmotherly wisdoms of or maxims, you know, don't go to bed angry at, at one another. I mean, certainly from my personal experience, I've been with my wife for 23 years, and it is something that we truly try to to, to adhere to, which is, yes, of course, there are frictions that arise. But once you get into the the the, the, the sanctity of that bed, you, you don't want to go to bed facing opposite directions and having your blood pressure up. And if you can just talk, I, I'm, I'm the type who I'm very passionate. So if we have a disagreement, I'm right there, Middle Eastern, I'm confronting it. But then once we're done, we hug it out. We remind each other that we love each other and and we move on. That that seems to be the right recipe, correct? Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds good for you. <laughs> have you, are you, if I may ask, are you, are you married? Yeah. How long have you been married for? 37 years. Well, you've, you've got me beat by 14 years, so you must uh, know what you're talking about. Okay, well, let's, so since we're talking about relationships, uh, strangers, of course, can become the next important relationship. Here, here's that beautiful girl sitting in the corner that I need to muster up my, the courage to go speak to her. Here is that guy who seems to be reading a good book that I'm sort of interested in. Maybe I should go up to talk to him and we can become great friends. And so I'm currently reading a book called, I don't know if you you know it, Bob, it's called The, the Power of Strangers. Are, are you familiar with it? Mm -mm. It's a book basically that's arguing that, you know, in the, certainly in the West, we've, uh, the operative mechanism is sort of the stranger danger mantra, which is strangers are to be avoided at all costs. Certainly when you're living in a big city, every potential stranger is a source of a calamity. And so we end up uh, foregoing opportunities in making connections so that, in other words, to your point about the importance of relationships, it's not just having a great relationship with a group of friends or with your pet or your spouse, also being able to have meaningful, fleeting, but 
powerful interactions with the barista or the person sitting next to you on the bus, those two are important for my mental health. Do you cover that in your book? We do. Yeah. And we it's mostly other people's research, but we know some from our own research as well. Okay. Very nice. All right. So now I think I'm going to move on to uh, some other areas. You're a psychoanalyst. Yep. Well, first of all, a psychoanalyst, does that mean that you adhere to sort of the original pioneers of psychoanalysis, Freudian and Jungian stuff, or are we past that? Are we, or how much of those ideas are they, are still being practiced in today in psychoanalysis? Well, some of those ideas are still very relevant and some of those we don't use much at all at this point. So uh, can, can you give like, us a sense of one or the other? A sense of one or the other meaning what? Meaning, meaning here are three ideas that Freud and Jung espoused that are still incredibly powerful and relevant today. Here are three ideas that we've let go 40 years ago. Sure. Um, well, ideas that, that are very powerful, the idea of the unconscious, the yes, idea that there are things not in our awareness that actually drive our behavior. Um, That's probably the number one most powerful idea that they came up with, correct? Huge. The idea of transference, that we transfer expectations from earlier relationships onto current relationships. And, and in that way, in some cases, misperceive other people. Um, uh, defense, we protect ourselves using all kinds of maneuvers to kind of twist around reality a bit to, uh, to make ourselves less anxious. Um, and some of the ones are... that we've discarded into the dustbin of history? Eh. Um, I think a lot of his energetic, his he had a kind of hydraulic model of psychic energy that we don't... He meaning Freud now. Not Freud, now. yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, there are others that are much more controversial that some people adhere to, other people don't. And I don't think I'll get into those. <laughs> the reason why I ask is because I, I think I sent you some of the themes that we might uh, cover in our conversation. And I included a, a book that uh, uh, I read many years ago by a uh, someone that's within my general field. He's he's a he studies decision making, certainly. But he, I think he was also a clinical psychologist. It's Robin Dawes from Carnegie Mellon. He had written a book in the mid 90s called uh, House of Cards in reference to the idea that many of the uh, principles that are used in uh, the mental health profession are built on a house of cards. Now that had a personal uh, effect on me because as I was trying to decide where I would end up you know, spending my career, for a short period of time, I thought whether I wanted to go into clinical psychology or you know, go, uh, you know, after my undergrad, go to medical school and, and become a psychiatrist. There were several reasons why I decided against it. And, and I don't regret it. One of which was I felt that I may not have the personality to, while I'm while I'm very empathetic and compassionate, if I could speak of myself, I wouldn't be able to create a clear delineation between what I hear at, at, in my job and then coming home. I don't, I don't want to be mired all day in negativity. I, I think I would have been the prime candidate for like jumping off a, a building because I would have taken all that stuff in. But the second reason why I decided I didn't want to go into the mental health profession is... Uh, Precisely to Robin Dawes's point, I I wasn't sure how much of the stuff would adhere to the exacting standards of the scientific method versus some of the stuff that was very much driven by cult of personalities, you know, by quackery and so on. Uh, is this something that 
you know, you've heard other prospective students in psychiatry enunciate this idea of, you, you know, it, for other fields, you know, orthopedic surgery, we, we, right. It's very mechanical. I know exactly how to fix the, the ruptured Achilles tendon. It's clear. We know it. Whereas when you're delving into the depth of the human psyche, a lot of it might make sense. A lot of it might be trial and, you know, trial and error stuff. Actually, that dichotomy is much less true than it might seem. So is that for right? example, oh yeah, the field of orthopedics. I mean, spine x-rays and spine spinal <laughs> scans often give us results that have little correlation with somebody's clinical picture, somebody's symptom picture. Interesting. So there's it's much less of a dichotomy than we think that that psychology and the mind is less grounded in science and hard hard things like orthopedics are grounded in science not so clear not not true well it's funny because it, it, it by the way not I, what i didn't mean to imply that all of psychology is is i, I thought specific i was referring specific i mean otherwise i wouldn't have spent my career being a behavioral scientist right uh i mean do you know who nasim talib is the author the lebanese author nasim talib has written several uh best-selling books. He's a uh, applied mathematician. He's kind of a rather caustic uh, gentleman. He's a personal friend of mine. We're, we're both Lebanese. And he long ago uh, was teasing me saying, uh, I don't know what you guys study in psychology, Gad, because all that all that there is to know about human nature, the ancient Greeks have already told us about. Now, he was kind of ribbing me. He wasn't being totally serious. But you know, as I started writing my book, and I suspect you being someone who's an expert on, on happiness and the good life, you're familiar with all of the ancient Greeks. It's quite extraordinary to see how much they knew and how much they got right without having access to the empirical methods that we have today. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, because it's the same human life yeah. that it always was. And uh, empirical methods just help us quantify and uh, test out hypotheses. The best way to generate hypotheses are through single case methods, right? Where you observe something and say, wow, I think this is what's going on. And then we use empirical methods and research to test those hypotheses out. Right. I actually, I want to show you a book that I just finished. Uh, this is an autobiography by Eric Kandel, uh, the, the famous uh, neuroscientist. And in his case, as you, you might know, Bob, he started off being very interested in becoming a psychoanalyst. Yeah. And in, in those in that time, of course, most psychoanalysts were first trained in medical school. They were physicians. Then they went into training in psychoanalysis. And then later, when his uh, interest in neurobiology was kindled, he tried to create some sort of consilience, some sort of rapprochement be between his neurobiology and his psychiatry. Where do you see the next big sort of consilience idea in psychiatry, the joining of what with what? You know, is it, for example, uh, behavioral genetics and psychiatry? Is it, uh, you know, is it trying to identify the, the, the new, you know, the, the psychiatric disorders at the most microscopic level? Where is the next big epiphany coming from? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's I think it's breaking down silos more than anything. Yes. We tend to put things in silos and then we realize no actually things are much more interconnected 
than we thought. So for example, our findings on relationships actually predicting whether you're more or less likely to get coronary artery disease. Like how could that be a thing? Well, if we look across silos, we see that there are all these interconnections. So I think that's what's happening more and more. Oh, I, I, I love that answer. Number one, because I've lived by that model for my entire career to, the, to my detriment in that, as you undoubtedly know, Bob, academia doesn't reward uh, the don't stay in your lane mindset. To the, to the contrary, you have to be a hyper specialist, you, you know, keep pumping out papers within this very, very narrow field because you, you can then have economies of scale. And so even though from this side of our, of the, the mouth of universities, they say they support interdisciplinarity from this side, they certainly don't seem to reward that. I mean, I, I've had universities who were interested in hiring me specifically say that it played against me that I published in medicine and economics and in psychology and in marketing, I seemed as though I was being frazzled. I wasn't focused. So to your point, do you see us being able to develop better reward systems, uh, you know, tangible reward systems in the universities so that more young scholars can actually move beyond the state in your lane mindset? Thankfully, I'm not in university administration. So I have no idea what that's where that's going to go, but but I mean I guess based on your earlier answer you you would you would certainly hope to to have a greater rapprochement of different yeah oh I would totally hope so I think it's where the most creative work gets done absolutely whether, whether the system will start aligning with that or not I don't know all right uh, next topic. Let me put this one away. Now, this one, I, I suspect you may not be very familiar with, and I think you might have warned me that it's not within your area of interest, but I still want to address it since you're a psychiatrist. Are you familiar with the field of Darwinian psychiatry? This is Troisi and Maguire. This is basically the idea of applying the evolutionary lens to study the, the genesis of many of our most common uh, mental disorders. That, are you at all familiar with the field? No. But do you, can I share with you some? If you want to talk about that, it's your show. <laughs> the reason, I don't know anything about it, God, uh, well, so it's up to you. Well, basically the idea is that there are many disorders that we gain perspective in understanding the, the Darwinian etiology of, this, of these disorders. So for example, I published a paper uh, many years ago uh, where I looked at sex differences in the symptomology of OCD. The idea being that there are some O's and some C's that manifest themselves a lot more in men, others that manifest themselves a lot more in women, and others that, that exhibit no sex difference. And I argued that you can use the evolutionary lens to exactly predict how these would assort precisely because there are some evolutionarily relevant problem that men are more likely to face or women or, or equally face. And so... It, the reason why I thought I would mention it to you, notwithstanding that you're not an evolutionary-minded psychiatrist, is that, as I mentioned earlier, Randy Nesse is someone that I recently had a chat with. And what he's been trying to do is incorporate ev the evolutionary lens, not just in psychiatry, but across the medical school training. The idea being that how could you become a physician yet never have studied uh, you know, what are the selection pressures that would have led to the formation of our bodies and minds? 
Do you have any thoughts on that? Notwithstanding that that's not within your area of special specialty. No, I don't. So, I mean, I'm sorry, but I just, it's just not something I've thought about or have any experience of. So, so in so your I case- guess my question is, God, why do you want to keep us talking about this when I've told you, I don't know about it. Oh. It's not my thing. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm asked often questions that I don't know about, but because I have, uh, you know, an interest and curiosity, I might offer some insight. You're obviously a very accomplished guy. So I thought you might have something to say, oh yeah, that sounds interesting or it doesn't, but sure, we can move on to something else. No worries. Yes, but, but let me say that people often ask me about things that I really don't know about. And as one of my research teachers said, without data, I'm just another guy with a bunch of opinions. Oh, I appreciate that because I, I've argued the exact same thing when I talk about epistemic humility. If you were to ask me, hey, what are the benefits or costs of having legalized marijuana in Canada, I would probably say exactly what you said, which is, I frankly don't know anything about it to offer an intelligent opinion. So I get that. Maybe we can wrap up with some uh, something that you do know about. You're a Zen uh, Buddhist priest. Maybe you could tell us that journey, how you got interested in it and so on. And then does any of your knowledge from Zen Buddhism manifest itself in your psychiatric practice? Yeah, well, I got interested in Zen Buddhism because I was interested in Buddhist philosophy and and found it to be um, uh, one of the most helpful things for me personally. And then um, I stumbled into a Zen meditation group going on right down the street from where I live and started studying with a teacher there and gradually just grew more and more involved in the practice so that now I teach Zen. I'm a I'm a Zen master, a Roshi, and I teach, uh, you know, I teach retreats and I teach a weekly meditation session. Um, and I think Zen very much dovetails with my research because Zen is about getting to know what it means to be a human being, what it means to be alive, sitting on a cushion. What does my mind and body do? And I'm studying thousands of lives Uh as another way to look at the experience of being human. So very related. Beautiful. Uh, do you, before I answer, ask you the next question, then we'll, we'll take a break and then I'll ask you one last question for our subscribers only. Uh, one of my former professors uh, during my PhD training is a gentleman by the name of Thomas Gilovich. He specialized in uh, the study of the psychology of regret. And he argued that there are two sources of regret, regret due to action. I regret that I cheated on my wife and now my marriage is over. So it's because of something that I did that I regret versus regret due to inaction. I regret that I never pursued my my interest in art and I went to medical school. I never really wanted to be a physician. Uh, and it turns out that over the long run, and it's something that I discuss in my forthcoming book, over the long run, what looms larger in our minds are the regrets due to inaction. So if I were to ask you, Bob, at this stage in your life to look back and think about your regrets, what would be the greatest one? And would it be, would it adhere to the inaction one or would it be an action one? Hmm. Or maybe you don't have any regrets, in which case you're, you're really well adjusted. Well, it's not that I don't have any regrets. I just don't have any, I, like I have regrets every day. <laughs> But I, but I don't have any great big regrets. I see my life as having unfolded as it has because 
of so many causes and conditions. And, and so in a certain sense, yes, it could have been different, but I see so many ways in which I understand how it's turned out as it has. It's been a really lucky, privileged life in a lot of ways. So I don't really have a, a big regret. Well, you're a fortunate man. Uh, guys, get out and buy this book, The Good Life. Great read. Thank you so much, Bob. Stay on the line for a subscriber-only question. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on.